I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. The task which has been set us is not above our strength, as long as we have faith. It's one small step for man, but by a leap for mankind. God's work must truly be our own. Well, good morning today. How are you? Okay, well, that's really good to hear. I'm, I'm glad about that. My name is Nick Allen, and I get the incredible privilege of being the discipleship pastor here, and it's a, it's a real joy and opportunity to step into this space to continue the series that God started here, that, that we might continue to be the unstoppable force known as the church that he created generations ago, and, and that this, at our moment in history, we get to step up and, and to take the mantle and the baton and to drive it forward so that other people may get to know the joy that we found in Christ so that they too can experience new life in him. You know, hindsight, they say, is 2020. And sometimes looking back, we're able to get a better picture of what reality is than we are in whatever the present moment looks like. I'm, uh, I, I was attending this week uh, my community group. Uh, community groups, um, public service announcement, incredible. It, it's the way to be connected to life here at Rolling Hills Community Church. I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago and heard this pastor named Andy Stanley, who's pastor of a mega church in Atlanta. And what he said was, you're not really connected to our church unless you're in a part of a, a small group. That if you come on Sunday mornings, that's great. You're just attending a big event. But you're not really bought into the life and the mission and the ministry of our church unless you're connected to another smaller group of believers that you do life with. And I resonated with that. And I say to everybody who's not in a group. You should be in a group because it's a great way not only to connect but also to grow. Summer is probably a terrible time to join a group, but that's okay. We'll help you if you need it because what we want to see is people navigating life together. And as you'll find in the passage of scripture that we go through today, we need people to navigate in life with us. So anyway, I was at my community group this week and we were reminiscing and talking about my first jobs um, as a 16-year-old kid. Not only did I bag groceries and retrieve carts at the Harris Teeter in my hometown of Charlotte, North Carolina, I was also a lifeguard at a neighborhood pool in the summers. I know that you can tell that by my physique that it must have been the case. And so I'm managing these pools and back then, you know, it was the 1990s, only the nicest of the nice neighborhoods had community pools. And so here I am, like, going in this neighborhood every single day, lifeguarding for the pool, and the pool wasn't large enough to require there to be more than one lifeguard attending the pool at a time. And so I was literally the guy on duty watching these people swim, responsible for saving the lives of, like, countless victims of drowning and, like, poor swimming techniques. Like, what in the... I reminisce and look back. Hindsight's 2020, and I'm thinking to myself, what HOA board in their right mind decided that me at 16 years old was capable and qualified, having barely passed the YMCA certification course, throwing up in the middle of the physical fitness training, getting a certificate and a job? Who on earth decided that that was the best way to keep their friends and loved ones safe? That I have no idea. Fortunately, no one died on my watch. Except for that one time there was a drowned rat in the baby pool filter. It was bad. And my announcement to anybody who creates those extendable pool skimmer filter net things is that you need to make it narrow enough to go into the filter at the edge of the baby pool because if you don't, then any lifeguard who's 16 years old making 5.75 an hour is required to go get some nine-year-old kid to reach their bare hand in and grab it out. <laughs> like, because I thought it was gross, and by gross I mean scary. Like, I wasn't doing that. I look back with 
literal fear as to what could have happened in any of those given moments. Um, and fortunately for me, they didn't. And if you had asked me, if any one of the moms or dads bringing their kids to swim that summer had asked me, I would have confidently told them that I could not only rescue, but also resuscitate their child back to life, knowing good and well that that probably was not the case. You want to know why I was confident? Because some trainer believed in me and told me I could. In fact, he gave me a certificate and a job reference so that I could have gotten that job, which incidentally was really because just some 20-year-old college student hired me to do it when she wasn't there, and I'm fairly certain that she was also paying herself for the hours that she wasn't there. That's okay, because I was also signing off on that clipboard that I had checked the pH of the pool and added chemicals when, in fact, I never did. Um, which is probably what happened to the rat. Okay, that's a whole story in and of itself. Hindsight is always 2020. Um, it gives us a, an insight and a recollection as to what could have been or what should have been or to what actually was happening. And I look at all of these moments in Acts and I think of what could have been the hindsight or the insight or the recollection of any of these guys who had walked with Jesus on earth and now they're experiencing this crazy unstoppable force known as the church and they're recalling the things that Jesus had said to them and I'm blown away and excited to dive into Acts chapter 5 today. It's literally one of my favorites, so I was thrilled with the assignment. There's a couple of different narratives that make their way in Acts chapter 5 and each one of them could be a standalone sermon all by itself, but we're going to go through and discover the running theme that's at the beginning of Acts chapter 5 all the way to the end of Acts chapter 5. And while each one of those stories could be a single sermon, it's okay, I talk fast, we're going to buckle up and go through every single one of them. I love what God might say to us today. Looking back on the moments that happened thousands of years ago in the life of his church. And so we start with Acts chapter 5. First one. It says, But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And you can stop right there because this is the connection point to Acts chapter 4 that we stopped with last week. You see, in Acts chapter 4, it concluded with a fellow named Barnabas selling a field. And he actually took all of the proceeds and laid it at the apostles' feet for the furtherment of the mission of the church and the gospel communicated throughout the land. Well, these people, they did the same thing. So we're connecting Acts chapter 5 back to Acts chapter 4. These people sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, verse 2, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and bought only a part of it, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan, whoa, filled your heart to lie? to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. Young men rose up and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And now if the ushers will come forward, we'll collect today's offering. <laughs> there are, I'm just kidding, don't like get your baskets yet, we'll save that till later. There are entire books and theologies and sermons that have been built around the understanding of why a God would smite a guy on the spot because of his sin. Um, and that may leave unanswered questions for you. And today we're going to move rather quickly in a different direction. Suffice it to say, I think that this occurrence in Scripture, I, I think that this particular story, which really did happen, and I, I think that it's printed and preserved for us to read today for a lot of different reasons. But the main one is so that you and I can know that sin 
is serious. And the consequences of it are real. And before we go feeling really sorry for Ananias and and blaming God in this moment, don't forget that Acts chapter 5 verse 3 says he was filled with Satan. Sometimes I think that we uh, as a church today have been known to just immortalize and, and even deify this local beginning early believer church. And we say things, gosh, if I could just find a real Acts chapter 2 church, if I could just find a body of believers who did things the way that they did in the New Testament and not get caught up in so many like petty things or material things or futuristic things or bothersome things. Friends, the church is only three chapters old and we've already had moral failure and hypocrisy. There never has been perfect church. never will be because it's full of imperfect people composed of sinners like you and me and the demand of Christ-likeness is uniform across the board. The church was growing by leaps and bounds and we read that people, even people who adamantly opposed to the gospel are turning to Christ. And in this moment when not only Ananias but also his wife, because if you keep going through verse 7 through 10, you'll find out that she, in full knowledge of what was happening, dropped dead too. There's a powerful lesson regarding sin for us and obedience that we can learn. And it's that nothing, nothing, nothing exempts us from obedience. Nothing. I'm sure they had their reasons, but nothing means nothing. No exceptions. You know, every single one of us has a really tough negotiator in our lives. If you're a youth pastor, it's probably some seventh grade kid who one day is going to be the leader of some mega corporation, but today you just need him to follow certain instructions without all the commentary. If you're a parent, your toughest negotiator is probably one of your kids, and while you are super excited that they are becoming an independent decision maker, sometimes you just need them to follow instructions and be obedient without asking all the questions. And as much as we have tough negotiators in our everyday lives who don't gravitate really naturally towards obedience, we have to admit that we're sometimes the tough negotiator in someone else's lives. By by nature, we're a people of special privileges. By nature, we're a people of special permissions. And, And because of that, we possess a remarkable ability to apply double standards to the world. See, we think that rules ought to apply to others but that we have special reasons that those rules should be amended or even rescinded for us. It's when our ideas and our preferences and our stories and our labels and our identifications and our experiences, our thoughts and even our circumstances and motivations, we think give us a get out of jail free card from obeying this word fully, but it doesn't. You see, looking for loopholes and looking for special privileges and alternative strategies, no matter how kindly you may express those desires, is ultimately always asking the question, how far is too far before I go too far? And it's the wrong question. Because for believers in Jesus Christ, we should be asking the question, how close can I get to Jesus without actually being Jesus? How, how close can I get to the character and the nature and the person of Jesus Christ knowing that I'll never actually be fully there? Keep on going and we pick up in verse 12 just a little bit further down. It's after the Ananias and Sapphira story and this is how the church continued to grow. It says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. 
And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, and it's because they had heard that Ananias and Sapphira died. And so there was this fear that came upon him. People were scared to join on to this group, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least the shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. These signs, these wonders, these amazing things, there's a hidden hindsight here. It's for the apostles, because you see, not that long before Jesus was taken from them, he spoke these words in John chapter 14. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do. Jesus said that they could do greater works. Jesus told them that they could accomplish great things, and they believed him. In Acts chapter 5, it says that more and more people were added to their number, both men and women. The church began and to grow and it continued to grow and there's a hindsight there for us you see jesus told them in matthew chapter 4 verse 19 that if they would follow him he would make them fishers of men and at the conclusion of his time on the earth he spoke to them we call it the great commission you will go and make disciples and see the goal of the fisherman is never to catch one fish it's to catch lots and lots and lots of fish and so in this moment where multitudes of people are joining them every single day everywhere they go everything they do they're performing signs and wonders and people are coming to Christ in the township starting in Jerusalem just because Acts 1-8 says Jerusalem Judea Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world they're making disciples and they're performing miracles these unbelievable works in the name of Jesus and I'm mesmerized and I'm shocked by this movement, but I don't think they were. I don't think that they were as surprised as much as they were affirmed. These barely schooled, completely ordinary, sometimes labeled ignorant men were doing amazing things. Why? Their leader told them they could, and they believed him enough to obey. And their belief in Jesus is coming true. I imagine these conversations in my head that aren't necessarily printed for us in Scripture, but I imagine some of these guys looking at each other and going, dudes, remember when we were standing on the bank and Jesus said, do this? It's happening. You remember that one time that we were walking between towns and it was really, really hot and thirsty and we really wanted to drink a water, but he kept making us press on and he was telling us, hey, you guys are going to do greater stuff than I'm doing. And we're like, whoa, blown away. It's happening. Hindsight's twenty twenty, and they're looking back at the words of Jesus going, everything that he said is coming true well then you flip that to the other things that jesus said because in luke chapter 6 verse 22 he said blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the son of man in john chapter 16 he wrote he said i have said all these things to keep you from falling away they will put you out of the synagogues Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus told them why he was warning them. Hindsight. It was so that when one day the persecution came, their hindsight would kick in and they would recall the words of Jesus and they would know that it came with a purpose and that this was all according to God's divine plan from the very beginning. You see, faith-filled obedience 
meant that these disciples would be able to apply Jesus' past tense words to their present day circumstances. And that's what Bible study for you and I is. That's what opening up this word and studying it and digesting it and even memorizing it is for us. It's so that these past tense words of Jesus might apply to mine and your everyday present day circumstance. It's when the things that we discover on Sunday make us different on Monday. It's when these words have the power to transform our thoughts and our actions and our behavior and our relationships. That's where Acts chapter five, verse 12 through 16, healing comes into play and life is given to you and I. The passage continues, we'll pick back up in verse 17. In response to what was happening in the temple and the teaching, it says the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. They were arrested for speaking in the temple. And then they were rescued by an angel from arrest and told to go back to the temple to continue speaking. I'm not sure I would have. This group of Sadducees, the, the religious ruling class of the day, you know, They didn't believe in resurrection of the dead, so naturally they had a problem with Jesus. And they didn't believe in an eternal life, so naturally they had a problem with this gospel being preached. So they felt threatened, and they offered threats. Back to the original point, you see, nothing exempts us from obedience. Not our own thoughts. That was the story of Ananias and Sapphira but also not someone else's threats. That's the story of Peter and these apostles. You see, sometimes the biggest competition for our obedience is an internal, sin-filled idea. And other times, the greatest competition for our obedience is an external, outside force. But nothing, nothing, Neither side of the equation gives us an exemption from obeying these words, not our own thoughts and not someone else's threats, not peer pressure, not public opinion, not the prevailing practice of the land, and not even proximity to the gospel. I can't explain how many times as a pastor, particularly as a student pastor, that I was always asked some variation of this question, hey Nick, what happens to the innocent guy who lives on a remote island and never hears about Jesus and he dies, where does he go? Well, the answer to that question is he like, he immediately goes to heaven to sit at the right hand of Jesus and he gets to inherit, you know, pass go, collect 200 bucks on the way. I mean, this guy, the innocent guy, he goes straight there. The problem is the question. There's no such thing as the innocent guy, not even the one on the remote island because we're all sinners and we've all been separated by God from the very beginning because of our sin nature. And right here in the middle of this hindsight moment, The rearview mirror is really clear. Jesus' words are coming full circle. The disciples are being threatened. They're being persecuted. They're being silenced. All of the difficulty, all of the hatred, all of the fear is happening that Jesus said was going to happen. And their response to it all, Peter speaks up. He always spoke up. In verse 29, it says, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. 
God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who what? Obey him. I don't think any of this was a shock to the apostles. I don't think that any of this was a surprise to them. The fact that they were being attacked, Jesus told them it was going to happen. And what they were learning in this moment is what we would do really well to learn and apply to our lives today. It's that obedience to Jesus always costs. There's always a cost to obedience. We say that anything in life that matters has a price tag. Two men in the world that matter a great deal to me. One is my grandfather and one is my mentor. His name is Stan. He lives in Charlotte. He's a great guy. Both of those people in my life told me in so many words that there are two things in life that you should never try to go cheap on, shoes and mattresses. Because having a quality version of both will save you pain and money later because shoes and mattresses, although they can be expensive from time to time, especially the good ones, are always cheaper than disc replacement surgery in your backs. I get it. Okay, I understand. The idea that the best things in life are free It's kind of dumb because even love, friendship, companionship, they all cost time and effort and incredible energy to cultivate in our lives. What's worth having is worth paying for, and obedience is not far off. Our sin nature means that obedience doesn't come naturally. The world's sin obsession means that obedience will always cause collateral damage in every area of our life, but obedience to Christ, regardless of our own thoughts and ideas and regardless of external threats in the world, it's always worth it. For the apostles, the greatest cost to our obedience is the adversity that we face because of it. So what do we do when we face adversity because we're being obedient to Jesus? What do we do when we feel called to stand up like Peter and say, okay, we must obey God rather than men? There's a couple things we can learn from them. One, adversity toward our obedience should always be expected. See, I believe the apostles recalled what Jesus said and believed it. I'm convinced that the shock value we give to the persecution of the early church martyrs wasn't shocking at all because Jesus warned, they believed, and here's what happened. They were arrested, that's in Acts chapter 5, verse 18. They were freed by an angel, that's in Acts chapter 5, verse 19, which would have given them another hindsight moment because they would have thought to themselves, whoa, he really is with us to the end of the age. And, whoa, he never is going to leave us nor forsake us. In Acts chapter 5, verse 26, they were detained again. In verse 27, they were questioned. In verse 28, they were silenced. And in verse 33, they were threatened. And in verse 40, they were beaten, all because they continued to communicate the saving gospel of Jesus Christ And in the face of every bit of that adversity, albeit expected, what did they do? They provided a really good example for us. Picking up in verse 40, it says, And when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Incidentally, it was reported that they were probably beaten to the maximum amount of times that you could be beaten before it was illegal in the Roman government. That's 39 lashes. It's crazy. And it says, Then... They, that's the apostles, they left the presence of the council, read this, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. 
James, where we get the, the book of James later on in the New Testament. He's the oldest half-brother of Jesus. He wrote in chapter 1 that we should consider it a joy when we face trials of many kinds because we know that the testing of our faith develops perseverance. How do you respond to adversity? When someone or something in the world doesn't affirm your Christian values or protect your right to socially, morally, vocationally, relationally reflect the character of Christ and follow the wisdom that's found in this book. A quick glance through social media would reveal that many a vocal Christian would choose vitriol in response to an unbelieving world that doesn't share and support our values. The apostles' response was quite different. It, it was actually the opposite. They were grateful. Grateful for the opportunity to stand out. Grateful for the opportunity to be different. Grateful that Jesus' words were still coming true in their own lives. The adversity allowed them to stand up in representation of Jesus in a new way. And the suffering that they faced actually linked them to the suffering that Jesus faced. There's a friend of ours named Jim Wideman. He lives in Murfreesboro, and he's kind of a family ministry guru for churches and travels all over the country. And he released a book earlier this year, and it's called Tweetable Leadership. Literally every line in it is less than 140 characters so that you can tweet it, and it actually fit into what it's supposed to be. And it's these unbelievable nuggets um, about what it means to be a leader. I think that we should probably come up with one called Tweetable Discipleship. Here's one. It is. It's really, I already checked. It's less than 140 why do we insist on a better lot than the apostles or than Jesus? Obedience often brings adversity and always costs us something. Hashtag unstoppable. Why do you and I in our comfort insist on blessings for following Jesus and comfort for following Jesus and ease for following Jesus and prosperity for following Jesus. That's not what these guys got. And why would we insist on a better lot than them? They considered suffering a privilege. Today I'm afraid that we consider it a problem. Here's another question that's often asked, not only among believers but unbelievers alike. Why does God allow suffering I'm so glad he allowed suffering because it was the suffering of Jesus that saved me from my sin. I'm so glad he allowed suffering because it was the suffering of these early church believers that catapulted them into existence so that today, generations later, you and I are still reading about what God did in their lives. Praise him for that. Why on earth would I expect a better lot than them? Adversity? To our obedience should always be expected. Jesus told us it would come. And it should always be welcomed as an opportunity to praise God for continuing to move in our lives. There's a third thing. It's that adversity toward our obedience should always be overcome. I can't imagine what these guys were thinking. Trust me, if I had been arrested, detained, questioned, and threatened, and beaten... I wonder just how far I would have continued to go. But in verse 42, it says, and every single day in the temple, that's where they were arrested, in the temple, and also from house to house, they did not cease. 
teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They kept doing what Christ commanded because obedience to him mattered so much more than submission to the world. In spite of any adversity that could or would come, hindsight is 2020. They believed what Jesus said and they did what Jesus commanded. Here's our hindsight. It's the words of Jesus and it's the story of this Acts 2 church. Knowing that it's our story and our turn, it will require obedience and it will make us suffer a cost. You know, this moment in Acts chapter 5 was neither isolated. The church continued to face adversity. One of the most startling ones for me came later in Acts chapter 12. They continued to face problems when they were obedient to Jesus. It was never isolated, but it was also not ineffective. They continued to grow. Adversity after adversity, problem after problem, arrest after arrest, martyr after martyr, they continued to grow as the unstoppable force. And here's the hindsight. Jesus told them that nothing would stand against their church and that it would pre veil. There's a book and a website and a movement. It's called Voice of the Martyrs. It continues to gain traction all over the world today. One story that struck me years ago when I read it happened in um, a communist country in Asia where a small group of believers were having Bible study in a home when police came in, threw the Bible on the ground, and told every single one of them that they could live, but only if they would spit on the book and walk out the door to safety. And one by one, the adults, the pastors, the elders, and the teachers, fighting back tears, trembling in fear, walked out of the door, spitting on God's holy word. And then a 16-year-old girl knelt down beside the Bible, wiped it off with the edge of her dress, and said, Lord, please forgive them. They don't mean that about her mentors and her teachers and her parents. And they put a gun to the back of that girl's head and she died. In my lifetime and most of yours, people still face tremendous opposition to the furthering of the gospel all over this world. And we do too. Politically, socially, economically, socially, we face it too. But Christ's church will prevail with us or despite us. Last personal connection. You know, I served that pool really well that summer. Nobody died except for the rat. Hindsight's twenty twenty. I was ridiculously tanned, but completely inadequately prepared for the seriousness of that task. But I believed my leader, and I trusted my training, and I confidently did my job. You and I, no matter what we look like on the outside, are ridiculously ill-prepared for any and all of these tasks at hand. But if we will believe our leader and trust our training, 
we can be part of something really, really significant. It will require obedience. It will mean adversity. It will probably cost us a lot. But it will be so worth it. The question that we answer today is, what is it? What is it about, about my life today where, where the Holy Spirit of God is calling me to confidently be obedient in a place where I have no business being so that the power of the Holy Spirit can ring true in my life and the gospel of Jesus Christ can be furthered. In what ways is he calling us to be confidently and ridiculously obedient in spite of the circumstances that come. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I continue to be unbelievably shocked by the story of your church. And I know that I shouldn't be because hindsight's twenty twenty. I read in your word prophecies about what would come and what would befall these guys. And on the other end of the story, I read about their deaths. I read about their persecution. I read about the struggles that they faced, all to communicate your word with boldness and without fear to the uttermost parts of the world. And God, I want to be like that. I want that type of obedience to characterize my life. I want that type of obedience to characterize this church so that one day... If you tarry, generations from now, people will look back on the early 2000s at Rolling Hills Community Church and they will tell stories of an obedient people called by God who did amazing things, ill-equipped and ill-prepared and really incompetent actually, but totally used by you. May we believe your words enough to follow your words. We want to be characterized by that level of obedience. 